Hey everyone, thanks for joining us. This is the Anesthesia Learn on the Go podcast series from the University of Kentucky Department of Anesthesiology. In these episodes, we will provide a high-yield clinical review of some of the common topics encountered by anesthesiologists at all levels. The following episode will be recorded by a member of our department at UK. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at UK Anesthesia and subscribe to the University of Kentucky Department of Anesthesiology YouTube channel for our video cast. Now fire up your headphones, relax, and let's talk anesthesia. Hey everyone, this is Ashley Lipscomb with the University of Kentucky Department of Anesthesiology. And in this podcast episode, I'll be discussing the basics of ECMO. What is it? And what do these numbers even mean? First, I'd like to give a tremendous shout out to my friend and mentor, Dr. Habib Schwar with the Department of Critical Care for sharing his wealth of knowledge with us all and ultimately making this podcast episode possible. So without further ado, we'll jump right in. We've organized this discussion into five sections to help you keep it all straight. First, we'll talk about what is ECMO even and what are the different types. Next, we'll move into the basics of circuit setup followed by the specific indications for ECMO, and then my personal favorite, what do these numbers even mean? Lastly, we'll wrap up the discussion with troubleshooting and complications in a section I like to call, what do I do now? So what is ECMO? ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation and is a means of life support wherein the patient's blood is actually drained from their body, circulated through a machine, and then returned back to them. There are three main objectives of the ECMO device, and they are to one, pump blood, two, oxygenate blood, and three, remove CO2. There are two major types of ECMO you need to know. Venovenous, better referred to as VV ECMO, which is actually used for isolated respiratory failure, and venoarterial or VA ECMO, which is classically used for cardiac failure or combined respiratory and cardiac failure. Now be aware that both types of ECMO can be subdivided into many different categories and configurations. However, for the purposes of this intro discussion and keeping it simple, we'll mostly refer to just the two basic types, VV ECMO and VA ECMO. As we said, VV ECMO is useful in isolated respiratory failure. Blood is drained from a large vein, typically the IVC, oxygenated and decarboxylated by the gas exchange membrane of the ECMO device, then returned to the right atrium, generally by means of the right internal jugular vein. The blood returned to the right atrium is then circulated through the right heart, lungs, and systemic circulation by the patient's native cardiac output. So, it's important to remember that in the case of VV ECMO, systemic blood flow and perfusion are dependent on the patient's own cardiac function. So in your mind, when you think of VV ECMO, remember it does not provide hemodynamic support and is only generally useful in the case of isolated respiratory failure. So don't confuse this with VA ECMO, which does provide hemodynamic support. Now, I know we said we were going to keep it simple, and I promise we are, but there are two major configurations of VA ECMO you should be familiar with. Central and peripheral VA ECMO, and we'll discuss them both now. In central VA ECMO, cannulas are positioned in the right atrium and ascending aorta. So blood is drained directly from the patient's right atrium, circulated through the ECMO circuit, then returned directly into the ascending aorta. 
completely bypassing the heart and pulmonary circulation. You can think of this as being similar to cardiopulmonary bypass, and it is typically initiated in the operating room with failure to wean from bypass following cardiac surgery. As such, these patients often have an open or partially open chest. One major difference from bypass, however, is that there is no cardiotomy reservoir, meaning that any blood lost outside of the ECMO circuit, say from bleeding, chest wounds, etc., cannot be salvaged or returned back to the patient. Another important thing to note about this type of VA ECMO is that oxygenated blood is returning directly to the aortic arch, very close to the carotid arteries. So the brain receives ample amounts of oxygen and therefore the risk of cerebral ischemia with central VA ECMO is very low. This is in contrast to peripheral VA ECMO where the oxygenated blood is returned more distally in the descending aorta and further away from the carotid arteries. And for reasons we'll discuss later, this makes the risk of cerebral ischemia much higher with peripheral VA ECMO. So, how is peripheral VA ECMO established? It is usually initiated percutaneously at the bedside. The drainage cannula is introduced into the femoral vein and projects into the IVC. This allows blood to drain from the patient into the ECMO device. The return cannula is introduced via the femoral artery with the tip projecting into the descending aorta and returns blood from the ECMO circuit to the patient. Now remember that VA ECMO is useful for isolated cardiac failure or combined cardiopulmonary failure. The idea is to essentially bypass the heart and lungs, but not all the blood is drained and circulated through the ECMO device. Some blood actually still makes it around the ECMO cannulas and circulates through the patient's native circulation through their heart and lungs as it normally would. So in VA ECMO, systemic blood flow and perfusion are a product of both the ECMO flow and the patient's native cardiac function, and sometimes they compete with one another. Especially in the case of peripheral VA ECMO, this can be problematic. So just to think about it logically, note that the blood returning to the patient's aorta in peripheral VA ECMO is flowing retrograde. The flow is reversed from the natural direction of arterial blood flow. So in order to reach the right side of the brain in particular and the right arm, blood must flow retrograde up the distal aorta towards the heart and up and around the aortic arch in order to reach the right carotid and the right side of the brain as well as the right hand. If this fails to happen, it can lead to a problem known as north-south syndrome which we'll discuss later in our troubleshooting and complications section. Now, let's discuss the basics of ECMO circuit setup. For the purposes of our introductory discussion, we'll limit this to the vascular access, the cannulas themselves, the pump, and the gas exchange membrane. First, you must have vascular access, which for VV ECMO means both cannulas are positioned within a vein. The most common configuration you'll encounter is right fem, right IJ. This means the drainage cannula is introduced from the right femoral vein and sits with its tip projecting into the inferior vena cava, where it drains blood from the patient into the ECMO circuit. The return cannula, as it's referred to, is introduced via the right internal jugular vein and sits close to the right atrium within the superior vena cava. 
In the case of VA ECMO, this can mean peripheral or central access as we discussed, but the most common configuration you'll encounter in the ICU is peripheral VA ECMO, with drainage occurring from the inferior vena cava via the femoral vein cannula and blood returning to the patient's descending aorta via the femoral artery cannula. Next, we'll discuss the cannulas themselves. Note that sometimes when we talk about the direction of blood flow, the terminology may be relative to the device and not the patient, which can be a bit counterintuitive. So drainage cannulas that drain blood from the patient into the ECMO pump may be referred to also as inflow cannulas, since the direction of blood flow is into the ECMO pump. Similarly, return cannulas that return blood to the patient may also be referred to as outflow cannulas as they flow out of the ECMO pump and into the patient. Now that we've cleared that up, there are some other important points to note about the cannula tubing itself. Venous cannulas drain from the tip as well as from a long perforated stretch down the sides of the tubing. And actually, most of the drainage occurs through these perforated edges rather than the tip of the cannula. This allows for continuous drainage and prevents suction during high flow rates. The size range for the cannulas is typically anywhere from 19 to 25 French for venous cannulas and 15 to 24 French for arterial cannulas. Now, as far as the pump and gas exchange membranes are concerned, we'll limit our discussion on these topics for this episode. Just know they exist as part of the ECMO device and work to remove blood from the patient, add oxygen, remove CO2, and then return the blood back to the patient. Sometimes the circuit also includes a heat exchanger that can help to warm the patient if needed. Now, let's talk about a few of the indications for ECMO, some of which we've alluded to already. ECMO itself is a bridge therapy, not a curative therapy. It may serve as a bridge to recovery, allowing the heart or lungs to rest and recover from an acute insult. It may serve as a bridge to organ transplant, or it may be a bridge to decision-making. VV ECMO is typically used in isolated respiratory failure without an associated cardiac dysfunction. This can be seen in acute respiratory distress syndrome, acute graft failure following lung transplant, or in cases of pulmonary contusion or hemorrhage. The overall idea is to rest the lungs. Historically, VV ECMO was not used as a bridge to lung transplant, but this is no longer true in the era of COVID. VA ECMO is useful in cardiac failure or combined cardiac and respiratory failure, such as seen with failure to wean from cardiopulmonary bypass in the case of central VA ECMO or in the case of peripheral VA ECMO, indications may include acute myocardial infarction, cases of myocarditis, pulmonary embolism leading to right heart failure, or graft failure following heart transplant. Now, we'll move on to our next topic of discussion. What do these numbers even mean? Here, we'll discuss what factors determine proper oxygenation and ventilation and define some of the commonly used terms like blender, FiO2, sweep, and capping. Oxygenation is determined by a couple of different factors, including the FiO2 of the gas exchange membrane, also known as the blender setting, the patient's own cardiac output, as well as the patient's intrinsic lung function. The target goal arterial oxygen saturation is typically around 85% or greater, correlating to an arterial oxygen measurement of 60 to 90 millimeters of mercury. 
The FiO2 of the gas flow through the oxygen exchange membrane can be thought of as being similar to the FiO2 setting of a ventilator. So the higher the FiO2, the more oxygen is theoretically being delivered to the patient. While the blender determines the oxygen air ratio and allows for FiO2 settings less than 100%. So for example, an FiO2 setting of 60% would correlate to equal amounts of oxygen and air. The patient's cardiac output is also an important consideration with regards to oxygenation. This is because not all blood travels through the ECMO circuit. Some blood follows the path of the native circulation and mixes with the oxygenated blood returning to the patient from the ECMO circuit. So oxygenation can also depend on the ratio of blood flowing through the ECMO circuit relative to the patient's own cardiac output and intrinsic lung function. Optimal oxygenation occurs when the ECMO flow represents at least 60% of the patient's cardiac output. Pre and post gases can be indicative of how well the oxygenator is performing. They are blood gas measurements taken from the ECMO circuit lines. The pre-gas, as it's referred to, is taken from the inflow or drainage line, and the post-gas is taken from the outflow or return line. Remember, blood is drained from the patient via the inflow cannula or drainage cannula and returned to the patient via the outflow cannula or return cannula. So we would expect the post-gas taken from the inflow or return line, the one that's returning oxygenated blood to the patient, to be much higher than the pre-gas, the one that's taken from the drainage line. In fact, the oxygen level of the post-gas may be even two to three times higher than the oxygen level of the pre-gas in a properly functioning gas exchange membrane. The pre- and post-gases can also give us information regarding patient utilization of oxygen and possible recirculation. If, for example, the two cannulas were positioned close together within the patient, Oxygenated blood may flow directly from the return cannula and then straight back into the drainage cannula without circulating through the patient's systemic circulation. This is again referred to as recirculation and would be evident as a higher than expected value on the pre-membrane blood gas. Ventilation on the ECMO circuit depends on the flow rate of gas through the oxygenator in liters per minute and is referred to as sweep. Capping is a term that pertains to weaning off of ECMO entirely. As the patient begins to recover, they will require less ECMO support. Capping is a trial performed where the patient receives no ECMO support, yet the ECMO cannulas themselves are still in place. The ventilator is set to fully support the patient's oxygenation and ventilation, and the ECMO sweep and oxygen flow meter are completely turned off. If the patient tolerates this so-called capping trial continuously for at least 24 hours or more, then decannulation and separation from the ECMO circuit may be considered. Next, we'll move on to our fifth and final section, troubleshooting and complications. What do I do now? We'll briefly touch on recirculation, chatter, north-south syndrome, low flow events, and then mention a couple of the most common complications associated with ECMO. Recirculation is a phenomenon typically seen with VV ECMO, where oxygenated blood from the return cannula immediately drains back into the drainage cannula without reaching the systemic circulation. Signs of recirculation include poor oxygen delivery, perhaps evident by lactic acidosis, hypoxemia, bright red coloring of blood in the drainage cannula, or higher than anticipated premembrane oxygen saturation.
Recirculation may be caused by cannulas positioned too close to one another, ECMO drainage suction that's too high, or if a patient's cardiac output is critically low. Treatment includes positioning of ECMO cannulas, decreasing ECMO flows, or increasing the patient's cardiac output with inotropes, for example. Chatter or chugging refers to rhythmic motions of the ECMO tubing and may be due to excessive negative pressure in the drainage cannula, turbulent flow through the cannulas, or a decrease in pump output. Causes include hypovolemia, high ECMO flows, cannula malposition, pneumothorax, or pericardial tamponade. Treatment, therefore, often depends on the underlying pathology, but may include giving volume or blood, decreasing ECMO flows, or cannula repositioning. North-South syndrome is a topic we touched on briefly with the discussion of peripheral VA ECMO. In order for this phenomenon to occur, there must be a scenario that includes VA ECMO, femoral arterial cannulation, plus respiratory failure or pulmonary edema, and some amount of intrinsic cardiac output from the patient. This occurs when the patient also has coexisting respiratory failure, so poorly oxygenated blood is being ejected by the left ventricle into the aorta. Remember, not all blood is drained by the ECMO circuit, so some still travels along its natural native course. But oxygenated blood is also being returned to the aorta by the ECMO return cannula. So, Poorly oxygenated blood from the LV mixes with the highly oxygenated blood returning to the aorta somewhere within the aorta. The area where the mixing occurs is referred to as the watershed region. If the LV output is low, it competes less with the return flow, so the watershed region is high, closer to the ascending aorta. This translates to less risk of cerebral ischemia. If the LV output is high, However, it competes more with the arterial return flow, so the watershed region is more distal, leading to a higher chance of cerebral ischemia. Monitoring for North-South syndrome can be done using pulse oximetry and arterial line monitoring of the right hand. This allows for monitoring of both oxygenation and pulsatile flow. Since ECMO flow is non-pulsatile, pulsatile flow could indicate a recovering LV. Low flow or suckdown events can be quite catastrophic. These occur when there is collapse of the vein around the drainage or inflow cannula. This generates a large negative pressure with continued suction against the obstructed tubing or collapsed vein and may cause all flow to abruptly cease, leading to hypoxia, hemodynamic instability, and possibly even cardiac arrest. The cause is often related to hypovolemia, but also can be seen with a thrombus in the ECMO circuit or kink or compression of the cannula tubing. Management includes fluid bolus or blood administration and checking for thrombus or obstruction of the tubing and oxygenator membrane. We'll conclude this podcast episode by mentioning several complications of ECMO you should be aware of. Bleeding is a common complication seen with many long-term ECMO patients as they are all on some form of anticoagulation, typically a heparin drip or bivalerudin infusion. So frequent monitoring of hemoglobin and hematocrit as well as coagulation studies is important. Oxygenator failure is another serious and sometimes fatal complication. 
When oxygenator or circuit exchanges are required after long-term ECMO, these are often near-code events that require the presence of multiple providers and specialists. Oftentimes, patients are administered boluses of epinephrine before and during the exchange. Other complications of note include things such as thrombus development in the circuit or in the patient's native circulation, cerebral vascular accidents, and lower extremity ischemia when femoral arterial cannulas are placed. The latter is typically managed by placement of a smaller, approximately 6 French or 8 French cannula distal to the arterial outflow cannula or in a separate artery, such as a superficial femoral artery, to provide anti-grade arterial flow to the lower extremity. Distal perfusion can also be achieved by retrograde perfusion via the dorsalis pedis or posterior tibial arteries. And that concludes our introductory discussion on the basics of ECMO. Again, I would like to thank my mentor, Dr. Habib Schwar, for his guidance in making this episode possible, and I would like to thank you all for listening and learning with us. Good luck! Hey everyone, thanks so much for listening. We really hope you enjoyed this podcast. If you have ideas for future podcasts, please reach out to us via email at learnonthego at uky.edu. Don't forget to follow us on our social media accounts as well on Instagram and Twitter, UK Anesthesia. From all of us at UK Department of Anesthesiology, have a great day.